I want to take an opportunity to remind everybody that while we are in a sanctuary, we're not going to exactly hear godly words during this podcast. It is not rated G. So please be prepared and forewarned. And now I'd like to welcome from the number one Jewish podcast in the world, Mark Oppenheimer, Stephanie Butnick, and Leah Leibowitz of Unorthodox. Hello, Washington, D.C. We are elated to be the guest of Washington Hebrew Congregation. We are at a show co-sponsored by the Association of Reformed Jewish Educators, or as they call themselves, ARJE. <laughs> We're trying to start a movement to call, get them to call themselves Arche or RJ. We'll see if that works. We're glad to be here tonight with many hundreds of you in what seems to be the um, the, the Astrodome of Judaism. This is this is like the high holiday space. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever been in a room this large when there wasn't professional sports being played. This is amazing. Our Jew of the Week this week is food historian and writer Michael Twitty. Uh, And our Gentile of the Week is newly elected Congresswoman Katie Porter. And Katie, I don't think I've seen since... um, her wedding, which was a number of years ago, and before that, college. I mean, we've, we were close friends in college, and, and then we have not seen each other much since, so it's, it's exciting to be, like, you get a podcast, you get to see your old friend Katie. I'm about to go to my, we'll get to everything else in the show, but I'm about to go to my 10-year college reunion, and I'm excited to think about the people who are going to end up being, poly, like, in elected officials one day, Yeah, and I think it's, like, the people you least expect, maybe? Katie is actually one of the people I'd least expect, and we will, we will, I, I will say that to her face in just a few minutes. Um, but listen, before we get to the guests, uh, you know, what is, Stephanie, what is up? What's up in but, but Nickiana? That's not a place. But what's up with me is that, so it was the 20th anniversary of The Sopranos premiering. And I don't know about you guys, but I actually had never watched The Sopranos because I was a little young and then never really got into it. But I spent a lot of time this past week watching The Sopranos. Did anyone else do that? You read all the articles about it? Yeah, you did. That interview with David Chase. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) one of my first observations was like four episodes in, there's a very serious subplot about these Jewish people and the um, husband is refusing. They're called Jews, actually. I I was going to say this Jewish family. Basically, the husband's refusing his wife a get. And then, like, Tony Soprano has to go in and basically, like, do what you do to get guys to give a get, which is, like, the Jewish writ of divorce. And I was thinking, I'm like, no one told me to watch this show. Like, I always <laughs> thought it was about, like, Italian-Americans who are in the mafia. And it's actually it is, about it Jews. It's odd that you made it this far in the Jewish worldwide media conspiracy and no one told you about the episode where they have to enlist the mob to get a get. That's it's, true, but you also haven't read Anne Frank, so... That's true. <laughs> you know, we can all surprise you. But the thing I was thinking about is, like, because obviously Italian-Americans were very upset at the beginning of this series that basically, you know, purported to show Italian-Americans in pretty bad light, right, who are associations with the mafia, things like that, obviously a nuanced portrait. And it kind of made me think about that it was so long ago, but I'm sure it was, you know, a very, very, a big thing that the community talked about a lot. And it kind of reminded me how we were, like, all so upset about Mrs. Maisel. (laughs) And I know it's like not portraying mobsters, but people are like, that, that butcher right. served pork. Our, exactly. Our complaint was like, that is not kosher <laughs> meat in the butcher scene. Their complaint is like, they kill people. And they're like, that Tisha B'Av fast scene lasted 72 hours. 
that is not how Long Tishabov is. And it's like, you know, I think it puts things they in perspective. They were not using that melody at a reform temple in 1960. Adon Olam had not been done to that tune yet, right? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so it gave me some perspective, which I liked. It's nice when ethnic groups get a TV show to kvetch about. Yeah. Yeah. I it think really that brings us all together. Brings us all together. Leal, what's happening with you? I never really connected with The Sopranos, you know? It's like, I guess how, like, when doctors probably don't like to go home and watch, like, doctor shows on TV. Like, if your dad's a bank robber, why would he watch The Sopranos? You're like, what is the show about? It's family and crime. I was like, nah. I'm watching Everybody Loves Raymond. I'm happy. That, so nothing's going on with you except you're not identifying with The Sopranos. Well, we have, we have, a, we have a host of things, as ever. Um, my, my older daughter, Lily, is about to have her sitter ceremony, uh, which sounds, yeah, aww. Who knows what that is? Hands. Um, what the, do these, these guys know what a sitter ceremony Ar- is? Arche knows of from sitter ceremonies. They have a panel really on sitter ceremonies good, tomorrow morning. They had one earlier today. She was putting like a makeshift karaoke show with her brother on Sunday, and she's like, I'd like to sing two songs. The first is Party in the USA by Miley Cyrus. The second is Adonai Svatayti Ftach Opia Gitihilotecha. And I'm like, and that is why I'm paying all my money to Jewish schools. I'm totally fine with that. If can they also tell, gave her like, say what that is, so people know. It's a it's a ceremony by which you you accept the Torah. If they also gave you you know a flag and a gun, I would consider her education complete. Complete. No. Ellie is actually because you don't watch The Sopranos. You really should. Um, Ellie like in Israel again, but too close. My um, my daughter Ellie, who's, who's ten, is is at my, the one of my five children is at Jewish day school, and she in fact has a yacht ceremony coming up where they. Um, they, they get their yods, and they have to choose, like, a couple lines of Breshin, and they'll, you know... But speaking of daughters and major Speaking of moments, daughters and major events, the bat mitzvah is nigh. It's Rebecca's the op mitzvah. Bo- the op mitzvah. Rebecca's bat mitzvah is coming up, and it's, it's been very moving. Um, I mean, she's extraordinary. She's, like, been ready for six months now, and if, she's over-ready. And she... Um, but, you know, one of, one of, I think, our family's goals was, and I think this is something that that you think about in our audience, I'm sure, was how to keep it about Judaism, right? Um, you know, the great, the great joke, like, what's the theme of your daughter's bat mitzvah? Judaism. Um, I, I, think we should, I think we should kind of find a new way of doing bar and bat mitzvahs. Please. We should combine, like, all... No, I'm serious about this. We should combine, like, all of the things Jews love. Uh, it should be basically uh, preceded by a standardized test. You, you take a test about Judaism... And then your score determines what kind of party you get to have. So if you get 100, you get like sushi stations, dancers, like whatever you want to have. motivators, if, Coke and Pepsi. If, if you got like, you know, 50, 45, you got a kiddish in the rec room of the show. <laughs> you know, you, you, got, you got 10 or 15, you get a, you know, kind of like a temporary tattoo of Tikkun Olam so or something. So what's on this test? Because I'd imagine it like a sorting hat. Okay. <laughs> or, or we do Gryffindor and Slytherin. Yeah. Um, but I, I know writing on the train, uh, you know, to here, you were, you were working on a very special document, right? You were working on the I was doing the program. program. I was doing the program. And because Rebecca did see, and I have to say, the bat mitzvah we were at last weekend was, was so wonderful. This girl was so good, so amazing. Lane to Torah so beautifully, gave such a good Devar Torah. And there was a wonderful, you know, program, as these things have, that really explained a lot of things to people who might not know stuff. And Rebecca said to me, because I said to her afterwards, is there anything you learned from that that you want at your 
bat mitzvah, and she said, I really liked the program because it really explains stuff to people, even, you know, of course, perhaps especially Jews who don't know what's going on because they're away. And she said, Dad, would you make, I don't have any time, you know, would you make a program? So I was on the Amtrak today. And it is interesting thinking, what are the elements of this event that you want to explain? Like, if you have, if you're taking an 8.5 by 11 page and folding it in half and making a four-page program and you only have... So and you want to do like words. a few clip arts, so like there's not that much space. Exactly. Yeah. Like, what is the key? Like, do you tell them what Musaf is? You can tell them what you care? want, and they will assume it's true. I mean, that's, <laughs> it's amazing power. You could be like, our angry desert god demands we wear the sweatpants at sundown. Like, whatever. I think I saw this on Broadway. It's kind of true. I mean, it, it is a kind of awesome sense of power of like, if I tell them this is Judaism, this is Judaism, right? I am, I am their rabbi for this. So this is the special Washington, D.C. edition of News of the Jews. Apparently, they moved a synagogue in Washington not long ago. <laughs> Apparently, it was a 143-year-old, 273-ton brick synagogue that was originally Otis Israel. Um, they rolled it down G Street. One block. One, one whole block. <laughs> um, and uh, it was its third move uh, since it was first constructed in 1876. Ulysses S. Grant presided over its dedication. And um, some, the original congregation in 1908 decamped to become Sixth and I Synagogue. And this one has done a lot of different stuff. It was a, it was a black church. It was a Greek Orthodox church. It was a barbershop. It was a barbecue restaurant. <laughs> it, was, it was a trafe restaurant for a while. <laughs> And, and then a coffee that's shop. That's why they so, had to actually move it. That's, that's how you kosher a, yeah. tree, a barbecue joint? You just move it Shake down Shake it out. Does I anyone... Imagine, <laughs> what are they going to do with it now? Does anyone know? Museum. Oh, I'm not no, going. I, can, I, can really... I would like for it to be like a rolling museum. It would just be like kind of like a food truck. <laughs> I can really imagine the discussion. Rabbi, you know how nobody comes to synagogue anymore? What if... <laughs> synagogue came here. Although, you know, I, I, I bet you that having uh, expelled the Jews, Ulysses S. Grant would be very uh, pleased to know that you can now expel entire synagogues. Entire synagogues. It just does his work for him. Uh, speaking of Jews, Senator Ted Cruz, apparently. Yeah, since we're in D.C., we're trying to keep it relevant. Ted Cruz has a beard now. Um, I don't know if you've been on Twitter lately, but Wait, are- Beto has a beard? Right? Beto O'Rourke grew a beard. Al Gore had a beard for a while. Now Ted Cruz says it. That they all do That's it. That's the trifecta. They That's a style do, story. Yeah, they all do it. Um, he said, he tweeted on, he tweeted that his friend in Israel, who's studying at a yeshiva, said that a rabbi said, it gives Cruz a Talmudic and rabbinic look and presence that will put the fear of the Lord into Israel's enemies and promote Middle East peace. So basically, Ted Cruz's beard is going to solve the whole thing. Like what Jared Kushner can't do. Ted Cruz's beard Ted can do. Ted Cruz's facial hair can do. Actually, it's kind of good. Like, it takes someone supremely unlikable to actually bring two people, like, two peoples together. Like, the one thing we can all agree on is but, but, but Ted Cruz. What, what is the deal with that, with that code? It's like, is Ted Cruz sitting at home thinking, like, how can I get people to fear me more? <laughs> Maybe a beard. You know, like... <laughs> Just He's like, that. how do I get the rabbi vote? That's right. The Speaking Israeli rabbi vote. Right. Uh, we are soon going to bring out our Jew of the Week, but before we do... We have an exciting announcement. Exciting announcement. Tablet Magazine, which is where we work, which is um, the magazine that produces this podcast, we have a book coming out. It's called The 100 Most Jewish Foods, A Highly Debatable List, and it comes out next month just in time for Passover. And we are all, we're all part of it. Um, 
our guest, Michael Twitty, wrote an amazing entry for it. And there's, there's really great contributors, Michael Solomonov, Gail Simmons, Josh Molina, writing about everything from gefilte fish to Persian rice and Yemenite chicken, babka, matzo balls, everything. Um, and things you hate, too. The book the comes recipes. out March 19th, but we want you guys to, to pre-order yours so you'll have yours March 19th. And we are sort of incentivizing that by doing a giveaway. So if you, buy, if you pre-order the book and then you forward that receipt, it doesn't have to be like the actual Take credit. Picture, we don't need your credit card number right. to this email, which is... It's 100foods, 100foods at tabletmag.com. You will be entered to win one of five gift certificates to Russ and Daughters. And they ship all over the country. So like that is some, that is some serious are, stuff. It's $150. $150. And we're going to be putting this out there just to, you know... I'm getting hungry, kind of thinking about you it. Be, but you that's could be just... in the in the in locks coma for like a week. Yeah, you could just for get that locks. kind of money. So um, you can get that on Amazon everywhere, your local bookstore. Yes, well, yes. Yes. Kramer. Um, you can pre-order in store as well. So we're really excited about that. Thank you guys. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Michael Twitty is a writer, scholar, and historian of food culture. His 2017 book, The Cooking Gene, won a James Beard Award, and he contributed one of the most interesting entries to our 100 Most Jewish Foods book. It's Pacha, and I'll let him tell you all about it. Welcome, Michael. Yeah. Pacha. 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 Jewish soul food. Will you tell us <clears throat> what it is? Pacha is... Hmm. And how it's, spe- <laughs> and how it's spelled. How about Get, that? You know it's good when you have to think <laughs> for like 30 seconds before pacha, telling you what it is. P apostrophe. Don't forget the apostrophe. T-C-H-A. Is an excuse to eat garlic. <laughs> It's literally what happens when you take a cow's foot and boil it to death, and then you put as much onion and garlic as possible. By the way, being a former Hebrew school teacher of 14 years, at Temple Bethany and Temple Shalom, here in the DC area, never teach seventh grade boys the Yiddish word for garlic. Um, or onion, sorry. Sibilis. <laughs> so you might say we like... Learned, we learned today about Sibilis in Hebrew school. <laughs> you learned what? Okay. Shouldn't trust that black guy. Okay, keep going. Do you like Pachal? I've had it once. But you know what? For me, you know, there, there, are, these, there are these three or four, like traditional shtetl foods that I just don't vibe with, one of which is not really a shtetl food, it's like an after shtetl food, and that's kind of Dr. Brown's celery. 
Like I uh, am a trillion percent with you there. I, no. Who thought? When same did here. That, when did that become a thing? Take it back. Yeah. What about nah. like diet cherry? So that's like that's like, that's like Karen's potato salad. No. Nah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nah, you got Agreed. raisins in it. Nope. Agreed. Agreed. So yeah, that that and um, Kugel took me a long time too. I was like, why? I said, Kugel. And, you know, I had to get used to it. And plus, I had to put more sugar in it. And I was like, okay, Kugel is like Ashkenazi juice, macaroni, and cheese, but without the stuff in it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, cream cheese, yeah. Which to us is not cheese, you know. It's like, uh. So it's like, okay. So I had to rationalize these foods in my brain. But just like gefilte fish for me is an excuse to eat horseradish. Yeah. No other purpose. You eat it by itself, they say you miss shake it, take it to the hospital. <laughs> Same thing, pacha. It's an excuse to eat garlic and onions. Sibilis. <laughs> so we're definitely going to get back to the food, but before, before we do, what, what kind of Hebrew school teacher were you? A crazy one. Um, I taught Orthodox, Conservative, Reform, Reconstructionist, and Independent Havara, all in one week. Keep us ruga, no keep keep black hat, all of them. That sounds like the premise of like the next Adam Sandler comedy. Right? <laughs> to win a hundred million dollars, he has to teach every kind of Hebrew but school. But I live that life, and I was for a lot of my students, for about eighty percent of my students, I was the only teacher of color they ever had. I was the only black male teacher almost all of my students ever had, in or out of Hebrew school. And the only figure of authority of color they ever saw in a synagogue. So I take great pride in that. Now all my kids are almost, I think my last group is grown. You know, it's not every day you get to make black and Jewish history. By you know, you know that your kids had an experience. And it was always my favorite thing. By the, by the, by the fifth or sixth year, the kids were like, you know, when they had smartphones finally. They go, can I take a picture with you? And so I'm like, uh-huh, exoticism. And they were like, no, no, no. Some kid at school said, there are no black Jews. My teacher is a black and he's Jewish. So we come in all colors. And I was very proud of that because it was already seeing that us and supposed to them and you is that, us, our. That's so amazing. But that, I imagine, puts like an Im- immense amount of pressure on you, right? Because you know, first time you walk into that class, you're like, I, I, am, I need to educate these kids about a whole lot more than just what the curriculum and is. And that's something that the, I think that a lot of the other teachers who I taught with, it took them years to understand that. That when I walked into a classroom and there was a Trayvon Martin situation or there was some political situation or some other nonsense going on, a flashpoint, I had to answer for that in a highly segregated area called the DMV. So my students often would test my boundaries, but also kind of try to figure out what does being black mean to you? And the, the best lesson of all was this lesson I did on what does a Jew look like? And I asked them, I said, why do I look like this? And one of the kids said, well, your ancestors were in Africa and they were in the sun too long and they had a tan. <laughs> what is it? And there was one young lady, she's in college now. She had red hair and blue eyes. She said, I said, do people think you're Jewish? She says, no, they think I'm Irish. And I said, I don't know what that means. Because both of my parents come from Russian, Lithuanian Jews. I don't know what that means. And I said, see, it's not just me. And so I asked them, who's the most Jewish person, Jewish looking person in the room? And they were really, I mean, it was, kind of, it was kind of evil, right? And so looking around the room, so I had to explain to them, no, I'm African American, I'm of mixed heritage, not everybody looks like me, blah, 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 blah. 
We're all different. We all, no matter what our face looks like, our phenotype is, you know, what we are inside is what, maintain, what keeps the same, what is maintained, our spiritual identity. So for me, having those conversations, I hope, leads to people who walk into a jury or a voting booth or witness an incident involving law enforcement and they have a different perspective than someone who did not have an encounter with a teacher who could guide them a little bit and say, wait a minute, this is how the other half lives. And so that's you, education. Yeah. Right. But you know what, from, a, from, a, from another perspective, I think a lot of people who convert to Judaism, uh, no matter what the background, I have Jewish ancestry, but it's not halakhic, right? I think for me, the biggest thing was people who tried to put, on, put imposter syndrome on me, oh, I lost that real quick. That kind of like, am I, am I not? Because I taught a thousand Jewish kids. I saved a thousand Jewish souls from going somewhere else. And I talked to my reformed kids the same way I talked to my orthodox kids. And I said, it doesn't matter if your father's Jewish, your mother's Jewish, you this, this, mm-mm. We're all one mishpacha. It doesn't matter. I taught my girls how to put on tefillin. I taught my boys. Being, putting on a kippah doesn't make you any less or more Jewish. I taught them that if anybody ever questions your Jewish identity, you tell them to take it up with Hitler. <laughs> get in their face, get in their face, and tell them that you would have been in the same boat. So we're one people. What, what, how our customs, what food we put on our tables, whether or not we wear a certain religious garb means nothing if the basis of being Jewish isn't how we believe and act towards each other and our fellow human being. That's what a Jew is. Michael, I, I can't tell you how much I admire your conviction, but I'll be lying if I said that the thing that I admire most about you is that you won the one award that I considered worth winning in this world. Like, if you ask me, I don't care about Oscars, Emmys, Grammys. You won a beard award, man. Look, I won That's two, boo. Like... I won two. And let me tell you something about that award. Why? I'm going to tell you why I'm bragging about the two. Mm, the two lichot, right? <laughs> when, when we pitched this book to um, some of the biggest publishers in the food world, and not just food world, but you know, the big companies in New York, I remember this awful day. My mom had passed away a couple months before. I was on my first big phone call. I was on the side of the road in North Carolina, which I often am. And (laughs) they were like, the cooking gene is all about me tracing my African-American roots through food. And there's a huge part of it that involves being Jewish because I, I, you know, I told them, I said, I'm black, I'm Jewish, I'm gay, oh my. And, you know, (laughs) bears united. And... I want to make sure that you understand that I'm like a holla, I'm like a braided holla. All those pieces have to work together. And you can't separate one out from the other. Um, and they got it. They were a fit. And the editor told me, I'm sorry, but unless you can extract the Judaism from this book, we can't work with you. And I said, what's your problem? And of course, there's two, there's two Jews sitting in the room in New York, right, telling me this, right? And they're telling me this because... Nobody's less Jewish than the Jewish editors yes. of New York City. And it's like, well, the thing I got told was, America's not ready for you. And I told them immediately, America's the only country where I'm possible. So uh, unless... <laughs> so I had my Sandy Koufax moment. <laughs> they literally told my, my agent, I couldn't be seen in public wearing a kippah. Ooh, Right? So I was so glad. <laughs> in fairness, they tell the same thing to me. So. Baby, I was so glad when I got up on that stage the first time 
and they said, you won for best food writing. And I got the smile on their face. I, I saw them sitting in the audience. I said, find it with your eyes. <laughs> and then the second time, it was like book of the year. It was like, uh, first black person to, first black American to win this award. Made history in one night. Yeah. And I said the Shahakianu from the stage. We should tell our listeners the James Beard Award is like the biggest thing in the food world for restaurants, for writers, for things like that. To call that. it the so, Oscar of food writing would insult yeah. food writing. So the cooking gene is out, and actually people here can buy it. And yep. by can we mean should or must? You will buy it on your way out. You have to pass it, and how are you not going to buy it at this point? But So there's another book coming out, right? Kosher Soul. So Kosher Soul, what, what journey is that? Kosher about? Soul is about learning and cooking. Um, my favorite Yiddish word is fresh from kite, which means you're Jewish through your stomach. You're religious through your stomach. Second you, only to Sibilis. You might, you'll miss, yes, you have to have your, after you get your Sibilis. You have to, in other words, you have to, you, you're, you're religiously dedicated to the cycle of Jewish food. And for me, I started out as a food anthropologist, culinary historian, and that drew me into Judaism. And so learning goes, learning and teaching go hand in hand. Like genealogy was a leitmotif with this book. That search, the very difficult search for African and African-American roots. But this one is all about how do you learn to be Jewish through food? And how do you teach about Judaism through food? How do you find your niche and identity in Judaism when you're not born into a Jewish community? But you have these very deep, weird, spiritual, you know, links that are there. I mean, just to play devil's advocate, you know, this, and this is a question we deal with on the podcast a lot, right? Some of our listeners will hear that and say, but they'll say, but we don't want Judaism reduced to food. In other words, we have a lot of Jews out there right now who are saying my Jewishness is like lenders, lenders bagels and not just bagels, like bad frozen prepackaged bagels, like New New Haven's gift to the world, lenders bagels, right? And, and of course I don't, you know, the same way I don't want black identity reduced to, um, Greens and chicken, right? Right, but I do understand this. I understand that when I learned about tachinis, which are you know the, the prayers of, of of women, Yiddish-speaking women, over the challah and the kugel, I said this is this is like the most amazing stuff. And then food is also weighing into other parts of identity. For example, there's a rabbi during the Middle Ages who says, um, who wrote a poem called "Why Hast Thou Not Made Me a Woman." And half the poem is about food. But it's a poem about a male rabbi who wishes God had made him a girl. So that he could cook? So that he could cook and be with his husband and observe the feminine meets vote. So we think of the, the T in LGBT as being recent. Uh-uh. This goes back centuries. But to know that in his head was this remarkable sadness that every time he looked at those sacred foods, he was reminded that something was off with him, that he wished he could, you know, I identify, because I'm a queer person, right? So I can identify with that and go, oh my God. And so when you make the food that people have made for generations, each and every single time when you're conscious of it, you get this little bit of a spark of immortality and also this bit of, you know, sadness because, you know, inevitably it will change. So if you could pick one food, one Jewish food that really kind of, you know, sparked your, your soul, that you really felt kind of like moved by. Grebenus. Really? Awesome. Oh, my God, Grebenus. <laughs> the food you can only eat once in a decade. I mean that literally. 
I mean, it's just some serious, just, we're not going to let any scrap go. We're going to turn, we're going to turn trash into gold. We're going to make goose fat and goose skin into the most delicious thing ever. Will you describe what gribbonness is or Gribbonness is poultry skin fried in schmaltz. Mit sibilis, mit pfeffer, mit salis, agishmat. The best. I mean, just, just. Do you make ribbonous? Um, once in a while, I. T- um, the only place I've ever seen is the Second Avenue Deli gives you the little dish. You know the best you thing I ever heard about ribbonous? So, of course, I attract other Jews with interesting backgrounds. And I was having um, Seder with this Orthodox family who was Mexican American, but their people came from Eastern Europe to Mexico three generations ago. And so she was describing, I think she had made mole with the Pesach turkey, which is amazing. And then there was like, she described taquitos filled with gribbonness. <laughs> and I said, wow. Now wait, there's oh, your wow. food truck. The wow. gribbonous taco food truck. That is. Let's quit right now. Yeah. <laughs> Just go. go on the road. Who's there in? Take that synagogue and like start selling <laughs> gribbonness out of it. I mean, that uh, just sounds... Mm, yeah. According to your Instagram, you've been traveling a lot. Yeah. You've been all over. You've been Italy, Ghana, Italy. I got uh, engaged in, Italy. in Italy. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. For that about. In Venice, I did it right. In Venice on the Grand Canal, okay? Yeah, not messing around. Yeah, where would the wedding be? I mean, what would you do for Encore now? You, you know what the weird part was? Um, we ran into Aziz Ansari in Rome for some reason. <laughs> that guy loves Italy. And I was like, I was like, hey, Aziz Ansari, do you want to come to a, a Jewish semi-Methodist gay interracial wedding? He's like, sure. Sounds great. Um, but I was like joking with you all backstage about dating. You know, when I was, when I had Shagat's appeal, Jewish boys loved me to death. The minute the kippah went on, so girls, I understand. Like, nope, it was not trying to have it. It's the resistance to making mom too happy. Uh, see, I was right, right. I was supposed to scare mom, That's not right. make her happy. That's right, <laughs> exactly. The erotics is in scaring mom, yeah, not was, in pleasing her. That's oh, right. the minute, oh, they would say, oh, he's Jewish. He's Jewish. <gasps> Bring him home. He's black too. Oh my God, this is gonna well, be so that great. That also raises the question. <laughs> I mean, that also raises the question. I know there's been a big. I'm not on social media, but I have social media minions who inform me what's on social media. They send me handwritten parchment letters in the mail that say, "What's been on Twitter lately is this." And my understanding is there've been a lot. I mean, one of the big debates of the past, I don't know, you know, six months, year has, has been the question of, you know, uh, are Jews white? And that whole question, and do they have, you know, do they have minority privilege? Do they have, you know, what's the intersectionality valence of being Jewish, et cetera? I mean, do you, you surely get called on to talk about that question. Yeah, and I try to avoid as much as possible. I'll tell you why. I want to live by example. I'm going to write about some of these things in Kosher Soul, but not a lot. Because really not my thesis. But I have to, but I have to talk about it, right? Because otherwise I don't get called for interviews. Um, <laughs> NPR loves a brother. We call you for interviews. So... But, but I will say this much, a couple things. Number one, um, having become more um, engaged with other Jews of color in the past five years and having spent a long period of time being the, being the only raisin in the kugel in the room, um, I, you got that right. Mm-hmm. Fan yourself. Now, <laughs> I have to say, I have to say that one of the, Modern Judaism has struggled with the role of women. If, and this is still a, gr- going, a growing and going conversation, right? It hasn't stopped, and that's good. Because like any other tradition, 
Judaism is nothing. The Jewish people thinking without its mothers, its women, its wives, its daughters. It's, 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 it's feminine presence. We've started to deal with LGBT issues. Why are we so afraid to talk about race? Race is an illusion. I realize that. It's not real. Race is something that was put on people to make them into a commodity. I get that. Race is a total illusion. It's not scientific. We are all one human race, indivisible. But, you know, I had a number of times when as a teacher, I had to school my kids on, that's not cool, and don't you understand that? And they didn't get it, and I had to do it over and over again until they finally got it. To talk about, and like I said earlier, a lot of my fellow teachers didn't realize I had that extra burden. I mean, I, for God's sakes, I came to school riding the Metro bus past McMansions. I was the only teacher who rode a bus from my poor neighborhood to the shul. They didn't understand. How come you don't have a car? How come you didn't do this? How come, what's wrong with you that you didn't attain? I'm like, okay, wait a minute. Let's break this down. And so for me, you know, we teach our kids that it is our, us, we. Not when those Ethiopian Jews, when we were in Ethiopia. You know you've succeeded when your kids go, when we were in China. Taking ownership of that community and saying they're part of us. The second part is everybody is intersectional and multicultural. Everybody in this damn room is intersectional and multicultural. Y'all ain't been the same since 1500. Nope, we've, we've, we're, that's what being an American is. And if you are not intersectional and multicultural, you're not trying very hard to be an American or to be a modern person. Let's get that straight. So we have to deal with this because this is, this is, this is our community against white supremacy. And that goes both ways. So we are unified in this. And I mean, I know we have different perspectives, and I know this can get people you know, very enraged, but at the same point in time, imagine what it's like being a Jew of color. You're asked to represent both your peoples. You're asked to hold your head up. And sometimes people on both sides drive you absolutely crazy, and they make you feel like you're not, you don't belong anywhere. Who stands up for us? So that, if, if, if nothing else, let's try to solve that problem. I'm curious, though, Stephanie. Absolutely. You're a tough person to interview because everyone claps after everything you say. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Stephanie just, just mentioned, you know, the, the, the travel all around the world. I'm, I'm curious how, I understand how all these complexities are. I, I think I can begin to wrap my head around how all these complexities might play out here, which is very difficult on its own term, right? But what happens when you get to say Italy and be like, oh, hey, I'm a... Well, I'm then he's got a Zizan Sari as a fellow man right. of color, so... <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a Jew of color who's gay. It's like, this, any of this play very differently? Going to West Africa, which I'm going back to in March, um, has really, like... Especially Senegal, because Senegal was, like, made me feel cool about my identity. Because I'm wearing Giniame, which is um, a Ghanaian proverb, means God is everywhere next to my gay AF uh, button with my kippah on, right? It's all of them are there, right? Um, but in Senegal, you know, you would see a Muslim family, a Muslim, Muslim husband, Christian wife, Islamic stuff, Christian stuff, but also juju in every single room. So this kind of, it made me feel comfortable with the fact that black spirituality, for lack of a better term, is very different. Because we're, we, it's, it's almost like carrying around a keychain with a lot of keys on it 
one of them's gonna work. Mm-hmm. That's how my grandmother lived, and that's how they live in the continent. And so I feel much more comfortable about the fact that sometimes, you know, my kids would joke with me and say, Mr. Twitter, you're gonna become the first black Jewish preacher. And I'm cool with that, because that means that I am authentic to the culture I come from, where you take everything and make it work. Two final questions. Yeah. First of all, when can we expect the next book? How, how far along is Coach Soul? Well, as soon as the beard thing happened, like, it went from being la-da-da-da-da to when can you pu- push out a new book? Right. So, hopefully, Bezrat Hashem, God, when the creek don't rise. Um, see that blend right there? And by the way, I'm glad that you didn't mention Lindsey Graham's beard. Um, oh, Lindsey. He's well, so cute, isn't he? Um, well, I'm glad you did. Um, you know, he got one. Um, but it's Hanukkah of, next year, of this year. Hanukkah 2019. Yep. All right, we're going to hold you to that. Final question. You're going to hang and sign copies of this book after? Absolutely. Michael Twitty, thank you for being here yes. for the week. Thank you. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Hey there, listeners. I hope you are enjoying this episode. This is Mark Oppenheimer here with my co-host, Stephanie Butnick. Hi. Hey. So I personally think this show was one of the best live shows in the history of our show and maybe the history of all podcasts. It was amazing. It was so good and so fun. So fun. But before we get back into it, I just wanted to let everyone out there know that if you like what you hear, you are in luck because we have more live shows coming up in the next few weeks. Stephanie, our first stop is Los Angeles, Friday, February 1st. What are we doing in L.A.? We are doing a special Kabbalat Shabbat live show at Adat Shalom on Westwood Boulevard. That's on the west side for all you L.A. folks um, who have asked. That's the first question everyone asks. Is it on the east side or the west side? 
And so we have some amazing guests. We have Lauren Miller-Rogan, who is a writer, director, actor. Her latest movie is Like Father, which starred Kristen Bell and Kelsey Grammer and is on Netflix. And she also promotes Alzheimer's awareness and research with her hilarity for charity organization. Our Gentile of the Week is TV writer for shows like Blackish. Jonathan Groff, who has also worked on Scrubs, How I Met Your Mother, Late Night with Conan O'Brien, where he was the head writer for more than 400 episodes. I was just so excited to learn that he was a Gentile and could actually be our Gentile of the Week because as we've learned, you never know. You think you've got a Gentile and they always turn out Jewish anyway. But this guy, real Gentile. We have to go to LA to find a good Gentile. And we also have Persian Jewish social entrepreneur Rachel Sumek, who is amazing. She's on those Forbes 30 under 30 list and her Swipe Out Hunger organization helps fight hunger on campus. It lets students donate unused food point swipes to students in need. And she's just great. And I'm so excited to have her as well. So that's three great guests. It's going to be so great. A spirited Kabbalah Shabbat and then a live show afterwards. To get tickets, go to bit.ly slash UO Live LA. That's bit.ly slash UO Live LA. And so we will be doing a, a Kabbalah Shabbat service before the live show. You are welcome to join for that. Also, we have it on word from the rabbi that you will still be allowed in the show if you don't make it to the service. So whatever works for you. Yep. And then we'll be heading up the coast the next day to Seattle. Don't tell anyone that we're skipping shul that morning, okay? February 2nd, Saturday evening, we will be at the Strom JCC for a live show with Dan Savage of the Savage Lovecast, one of our favorite podcasts. And Stephanie, who else is joining us? We have Rabbi Will Berkowitz. He is from the Jewish Family Services and formerly of the Hillel Organization. And so he's sort of a big macher with Jewish life in the Seattle area. So we're excited about that, too. That's going to be great. We already have a bunch of questions for Dan that have come in through email, through Facebook. Listen, if you want to get your question to Dan, it's not too late. You can send it to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Put Savage Love in the subject line. We will anonymize it for you. You can also call our listener line, 914-570-4869. We will put a weird filter over your voice so that nobody knows it's you asking. If people want to get tickets for that show, Stephanie, how can they do it? bit.ly slash UO Live Seattle. And if you guys don't live there, but know someone who does, tell them to come. Tell them they cannot miss an unorthodox live show because they are very fun. Very fun. And now back to our live show from Washington Hebrew Congregation with the Association of Reformed Jewish Educators, or as we call them, RJ. Our Gentile of the Week is Representative Katie Porter of the California 45th. She's a member of the newly Democratic Majoritarian House and part of... and part of the record-breaking 102 women elected to Congress in the 2018 midterm elections. She had to win a grueling primary and then one of the longest counts of the year before she was certified as the winner. She was born in Iowa. She passed through New Haven, where I got to know her 25 years ago. We're thrilled. And now she is here. We're thrilled our Gentile of the Week is Katie Porter. call you? Um, Congresswoman. 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 Does that sound, does that still sound exciting to you? Yeah, it still sounds exciting and it it took me a little bit to get used to it, but then I remembered when I was younger and sterner, um, on my first night before I went to teach, I was a law professor, and I remember my mother asking me, are you going to make your students call you professor? And I said, 
only if they want me to answer. And so I thought, like, what has happened to the fire in the belly? Like, I need to kind of up my game again. Wait, so. pause on that for a second. So should we not call someone representative so-and-so? No, you can call representative. Representative, okay. Congresswoman yeah. or representative. Yes, Got either it. one. And some people go with Congress member as opposed to congresswoman. So that's something I've been to go with a gender, a non-gendered term, so. Got it. And so would it be Congresswoman Porter? Like if I... Yeah, so you would say... Yeah, I like that. So um, I recently was reading up on this because I was having a ceremonial swearing in in my district and I was trying to figure out what my own invitation to my own event should say. Um, And so you would address an envelope. It's like a judge. You would address the envelope, the honorable, which I find funny, the honorable Katie Porter. And then when you speak to me, it's like judge so-and-so. So So it's Congress member Katie or Congress member Katie Porter. But I really, I will say there are two Katies in Congress. Um, My fellow Californian, Katie Hill. And even though there's like a million Bobs and a million Mikes and a million Joes and a million Toms and they're all white dudes, nobody gets that mixed up. (laughs) <laughs> but on my big moment of glory, on January 3rd, the day I was sworn in, Nancy Pelosi is up at the dais, and she singles me out. And she says, I just want to say happy birthday to Congresswoman Katie Hill. <laughs> and her children, and Katie Hill has no children. And the leader got all, the speaker got a little confused, but she got it squared away um, because she has secret whisperers who fix everything that she thinks. Um, and so she, she never, like, very rarely makes these mistakes. So I am one of two Katie's, um, which You're is Katie a, P. Yeah. This is fairly stressful for me because I had a friend who was low, low down in the Obama administration who told me that, you know, when you work for the president, even if you're his bestie, like even if you're one of the people who came up with him in Chicago, when in the presence of other people, you don't say Barack, you say Mr. President. And I'm wondering, are we on... You're you're at the congresswoman level. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean... I thought so. But I, I will tell you, I mean, Mark and I do go way, way back, and it's, I do find it, I was thinking as I was on my way coming in, that it, there is a bit of sort of interesting history, not just to the fact that I know Mark, because he was just one more person at Yale, um, one more Jew, really, at Yale. Um, <laughs> but I was but the Jew at Yale, right. That Mark, I don't know if you remember this, but Mark was the first person who took me to the kosher kitchen. And um, I don't when, remember, no. when we d- went to the kosher kitchen, so keep in mind before you judge me that I am the Gentile of the week. <laughs> Gentile <laughs> to the Gentile of the week as I tell you this story. So I grew up in Iowa. I was a little clueless about Jewish culture. And so Mark invites me to the kosher kitchen, and they are serving hamburgers. And Mark is like, do you want a hamburger? And I was like, no, what a cheeseburger. <laughs> And Mark said, we don't have cheeseburgers. And I was like, are you out? I started to badger, like the staff at the kosher kitchen, right? And then I went to get my milk, and there is no milk. And I was just deeply, like, confused. And then, you know, this was before you had Google, like, right there to solve your problems. And so Mark kindly explained to me the concept um, for the first time of kosher food, um, which is a concept that has been explained to me repeatedly by the JCC where my son went to preschool because 
when you're a mom and you're a single working mom and you're in a hurry, um, one day I was like, oh my God, this is great. I have like a nutritious kind of thing. I'm not just going to put some crackers in and some yogurt. I'm going to send my son to school with a big old piece of fried chicken and some mozzarella cheese sticks. And I threw this all together. And of course, it, you know, it comes back and you open up the lunchbox. And to really they drive home. They have a little juice shaming note that they, they send have back? A, they, have a, they have a gentle shaming note um, that's like kind of melded onto the, the food that you've missent. And so you have to like scrape the note off the food and then dump the food out. So um, you were the first, but not the last person <laughs> I tried. to try um, well, to explain this. We concept. will not shame you tonight, but I do want to ask, like, how do your kids feel about this? Do they think it was cool being up there with you? Do they like, are they embarrassed? Like, I'm what gonna, are they, do I'm they understand? Guess, I'm just going to guess. Kids never think their parents are cool, right? What, do your kids um, think you're cool? No, so I will tell you the most touching moment of the entire campaign, and I was a candidate for not quite two years, so it was a very, very long campaign. But the most touching moment was I allowed my oldest son, I chose my oldest son, who just turned 13 on Saturday, um, to introduce me on election night. And at the time I was taking the stage, we didn't think I had won. Wouldn't say we were sure I'd lost, but we didn't think I'd won necessarily. And so the crowd is tense. People are a little sad. They're uncertain. And my son gave my introduction. And I learned a couple of things from this. Um, One is I learned before you allow your child to introduce you, um, make sure that he's not a better public speaker than you. So... (laughs) My son had the crowd chanting, Luke, 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 Luke. I mean, they, like, he brought down the house. And, um, and then the second thing is at the very end, he said, you know, it's my pleasure to introduce my mom, my hero, Katie Porter. And so the other lesson here is, like, make sure that you, like, are not going to get teary at this big moment. <laughs> because, um, so it was really great. So they had fun on the campaign. I, I do think... A lot of candidates, particularly candidates with young children, maybe more men than women, think that campaigning is a hardship. It's like something that your children endure, right? Um, and so it's it's really not. It was a family event for us. It was a family experience. So I took my kids to all kinds of campaign stuff. Um, sometimes that worked out great, like election night. My son did a great job. Um, sometimes it was funny, so I took my children to hear our California governor, Gavin Newsom, and um, there was in a small room, and it was a public event, just free and open to the public, and my middle son kept raising his hand, and I kept, like, pulling it down, (laughs) and Gavin himself has four kids, and so Gavin likes kids, and so, like, the second Paul, I was like, oh, no, and so Paul, you know, he calls on Paul, and he says, yes, young man, and Paul says, you're a lot better at this than my mom. Can you help her? <laughs> and I was like... <laughs> and Gavin, who of course has been campaigning, really, let's face it, all of Jerry Brown's eight-year governor term, um, <laughs> Gavin very kindly said, well, you know, she's had a, I've had a little bit more practice than your mom. Um, and your mom is, you know, is pretty great. Um, but I, I think my kids really had fun with the experience. I will say that, you know, particularly the shutdown and kind of the chaos that it's creating um, for this country and including for my own schedule. I have to call my kids tonight and tell them I'm, I'm not coming home necessarily. And next week, I'm not necessarily going to be with them um, because we're rearranging things, trying to get the government open. Um, we're really trying everything we can um, to get the government open. But 
Um, and I, you know, after I won, I remember saying to my kids, well, you know, the re-elect starts now. <laughs> and we have to start working on 2020. And my son said, what? And I said, well, yeah, you know, it's, over, it's every two years. And my son said, ah, oh, mom, maybe just once. <laughs> like, he just, he was floored by this idea of this perpetual campaign that is the House of Representatives, for better or worse. Um, so. so now that you're here, now that you're in Congress, how are you hoping to make a difference? And will you tell us a little bit about some of your, your, your great ideas? Yeah, so... And I'll talk a little bit about kind of what we are trying to do um, and then kind of things that I personally want to work on. So um, the two bills that I'm very excited about that I think we will pass in the House um, very soon, I think as soon as we get the government open, we'll, we'll move these bills forward. Um, one is a voting rights um, campaign reform anti-corruption bill. And... That is the uh, so-called HR1, right? So it's a little bit like when you play a sport, like there are cool numbers, and HR1 is the, the number. And so I'm really excited about that, Bill. I think if we don't make real progress on some of these issues, it's going to be hard to get people moving on other issues. So this, a lot of us campaigned on, and I think this election was about restoring our faith in our democracy um, and some of our institutions of government, some of which are being badly tarnished. Um, and so I think that's really exciting. And then I'm also really excited about the um, HR 8, which is a gun violence prevention bill. And it would institute mandatory national background checks and so close some of the gun show loopholes, some of those things. So, Is there any chance the Democrats are going to cave on the border wall? I am not going to cave on the border wall. Um, I, and I say this to you as somebody who is about 90 miles from the, the Mexico-United States border. Um, I represent an area that... Um, historically was formed. Orange County was kind of populated by a lot of, frankly, white people um, fleeing Los Angeles. Um, but it's become a more diverse place, and I, I think there's just multiple reasons why it's the wrong thing to do. And I think one of the things that we've said is, look, border security is important, but we're not going to discuss border security until he opens the government. Um, and we've given him lots of opportunities, the president, lots of opportunities to do that. And so the goal is not, you know, the goal is to make investments in border security, to make investments in our immigration system. Um, but the physical wall, for me, is, is off the table. It's a waste of taxpayer dollars. It sends the wrong signal. Um, it's contrary to our history as a country, the best of our history. Um, and I think it so I, I very much hope that we stand strong. So to, to, stay, to stay for a minute on, on this partisan vibe, um, you unseated a two-time Republican incumbent in really one of the closest election, right, winning by, I think, something like 12,000 votes eventually, uh, in a campaign that took a long time, an account that took a long time. Be honest here. Like, at some point... Did you really develop like a strong animosity for your opponent? You're like, just I just can't no, stand you, her. You know what's interesting? I, I really didn't. Um, so I defeated a Republican named Mimi Walters. It was one of um, a few woman-on-woman -woman, um, races. I actually think that was a benefit in that people quit asking me what it was like to run as a woman. Like I don't. I've never been a dude, so I I don't know. Like. <laughs> I, I, I can't give you that perspective, right? Like, um, and so I think there was less talk about what does it mean to be a woman and more on the issues. 
I think it was after I was elected and began to understand some of the tools that those of us in Congress have to help our constituents and some of the tools that those of us have to help people that I began to become even more disappointed kind of in that representative because it became clear to me that she had not used a lot of those tools. So in terms of caseworkers and in terms of engaging the public. So she never had a town hall. She never had a public meeting. Um, I was in a room like this, 700 people um, during my primary. We were asked to raise our hands if we had ever seen uh, Mimi Walters in person. Um, I was the only one of the five candidates who had. Um, I saw her at a Memorial Day event where she was giving the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, and I rushed right up to her. And I was like, Representative Mimi Walters, it's Katie Porter. And she did not share my enthusiasm. Um, and she literally like turned on her heel and kind of fled. So um, she, it was, but it was grueling. I mean, it was a hard race, but I don't think I ever developed a personal animosity. Um, I just partly never m met her. And so I was running more against an idea than I was against an actual person. And I think that was a reflection of her weakness as a representative. So what will your day-to-day, -day, you know, once the government hopefully soon gets up and running, what, were your, what does your schedule look like? How much are you in California? How much are you here? And how does, how does that play into your calculus, especially with your children? Yeah, so this is something that we're talking a lot about right now, sort of what does it mean to do the work of representing the American people? And I think one of the things that we need to do is help the American people understand what we do when we're in our home districts. And so I think the perception is that we're in, we're in Washington, we're working, and we're in our home districts, we're at home, but we're actually, we have two offices at least, um, one in Washington and at least one or more in the district, and that time in district is really, really important. Um, and so we're, there's kind of a, a balance going back and forth on how much time should we spend in our districts, and I think the shutdown is really driving this home. So should we stay here all week and wait and wait and hope that the Senate does something? Or should we go home and listen to the voices of those who are being hurt by this shutdown, right? And so which, which one is the better use of our time? Which one helps convey how important this is to us? And so I think right now we kind of have the traditional calendar. It's roughly three weeks in DC, and I go home every all the time because I have three kids and nobody else wants to take care of them. So, um, What's your airline and how are your miles? Well, so be? that is really, it's funny you mentioned that because just today I, I said to my staffer, she said, well, you know, ma'am, what, what, she calls me ma'am, it's really cute. And my son has picked this up and I find it so endearing in my teenage son. Your staffer calls got me, your son to start mamming yes, you? Yes, yes, it's like the best. She I should get a bonus. staffer to get my kids to start So yeah. yeah, and so she said, ma'am, what, what which of these flights would you like? And I, I just said like, are we not, are we not communicating? It was kind of like when you're having this, like, do we need to break up conversation? And I was like, I, I don't fly United. And all you keep doing is giving me United flights. Like, is there a problem with American Airlines? Are they like worse? I mean, they all seem equally bad to me, right? I think about airlines and credit card companies and cable companies, it's like, just choose one because they're all bad. And so like, you will be dissatisfied. Um, and so right now I would tell you that I'm, <laughs> I'm in coach, I'm in a middle seat. A lot of seat. people feel the same way about politicians, by the way. Exactly, so. exactly. Um, and so, yeah, no, it's, 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 I'm just struggling along in so coach. American. With American. With American. Yeah, and I picked American because they serve Diet Dr. Pepper. Um, <laughs> just... 
So listen, um, you've never been a Dental of the Week before. Correct. Except uh, at the kosher. Except at the kosher. kosher, kosher. kosher. <laughs> <laughs> and the JCC. I was more like Gentile of the Year, I think. <laughs> um, but one of the privileges bestowed on the Gentile of the Week is the opportunity to ask an internationally recognized panel of Jewish experts anything you want about Judaism. Now look, you had four years at Yale and three years of Harvard Law to ask a lot of Jews a lot of questions. So I don't imagine... I don't imagine there's that much that's gone unanswered, but is there anything still just sticking your cry? Anything you don't understand about us, our people, our faith, our habits? Okay, so I have I have two questions. So is that okay? That's okay. Very Jewish. Yes, Congresswoman. So it is very Jewish, isn't it? It's very Jewish. So my first question is about this upcoming holiday, which is I think you know kind of not a huge one, but two bishat, right? And so why are you having like your Arbor Day in the dead of winter? So, I mean, what are you supposed to do? Like, why not have your Arbor Day, say, in the spring or the fall, like... Normal people? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> can I, I actually would like... To, can I throw this to RJ? Yeah. Is there... So, I want one of so you... So it's two parts. It's why do... Why, give us a what is too much about, and then also how you make it relevant when it's in the middle of winter to yes. your who students has or a, campers. Who feels like... You own Tuba Shavat with your kids. Like, who just, who is, who is the queen or king? We won't talk about have, spelling it because we we'll never agree. Okay, we'll get two answers. Right up then. here in the front, Josh. Yeah. Although it is colder in Israel right now than in the springtime, um, the first trees in Israel are just barely getting their buds. And the tree that does it first is the almond tree, the Shkedia. And it's happening really soon. <laughs> All right. So, really soon. So there you go. It's so what do we do? What should we be doing for Tubishvat in the winter? We should be acknowledging that we have a an earth that gives us trees every year, or that gives us buds and flowers and fruit and lots of good things, and that and that we're lucky that that each year we have this, and we should be saying thank you for all of it. There we go. So in it's, fact, when the, it's when the almond tree starts budding. In fact, right. interestingly, um, according to the Mishnah, we have four New Year's uh, during the year. Uh, there's the first of Nisan, which is New Year's for kings and rulers. Uh, the first of Elul, which is the New Year for beasts. The first of Tishrei, which is the New Year for all of recorded history and time. And uh, the 15th of Shvat, which is New Year for trees. You see, you get your money's worth. You should, by the way, legislate that calendar to make it, you know, for everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. It's a bank holiday. Yeah. So, so my other question is, um, I've had the chance to participate in and attend lots of Jewish services as a candidate, which I've really, really enjoyed. Um, but Orange County, as you may know, is also the home of several very large evangelical Christian churches, um, including Mariner's Church and Saddleback Church and... Um, the Crystal Cathedral back in the day and some of those. And so um, production... The late lamented Crystal Cathedral. It really is like a a faux Crystal Cathedral. Um, And so production value is really important at these churches. So my question is, um, could the bima like burst open so that the rabbi could spring kind of on to the stage? With like his microphone. So you've touched touched on a sensitive subject. Well, so I asked like, (laughs) is there a green room where I can like burst through there and like I won't touch the scrolls or anything, but I just think it would be so cool. I mean, there are some very cool robes back there that we almost put on to wear out, but that felt sacrilegious. Josh, you have an answer to that? Well, my kids just watched Raiders of the Lost Ark last night and you got to be careful with what you open. Um, yeah, it's true. Yeah, Mark, take this one. Yeah, that, the, the, the production value, let's, let's put it this way. 
no one approaches the evangelical Christians in terms of production values. I mean, they're an hour start to finish. They've got a rock band on stage. Um, they've got really good PowerPoint. They have, like, great merch. Yeah. Yeah. Great merch. Um, and they have the food courts. I mean, you've been to these mega churches where you've got your McDonald's, you've got your Chick-fil-A, then you've got your other Chick-fil-A, and then... That's the Chick-fil-A your, you don't your go Your other to. Chick-fil-A. And, you know, the reality is we are a simple peasant people. And... Um, you know, we've got, we've got, we've got some books on, on scroll and, um, you know, in another couple thousand years, we'll hope to approach, uh, we'll hope to approach that, but it's a fair question. I um, hope we don't. What's that? I hope we don't. I hope we don't. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Um, yeah, this is as close to like mega church as I want to get. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Representative Porter, if these fine, are you, you're going to hang out for a little while mm-hmm. afterwards, I understand, and schmooze, but if these fine people or out there in podcast land want to, like, I bet you have a, I bet you have a, a Michael Twitter account, as we're calling them now, um, do you, how can they follow you? Yep, so um, our official account is, um, it's pretty clever, they're, they're given, they give you your name, so it's at Rep Katie Porter, um, and not at Rep Katie Hill. Wait, wait, wait. At Rep someone Katie could, Porter. Someone could squat on that, though. How do they make sure nobody... No, I don't know. How do they make sure Mimi Walter didn't squat I, on at Rep Katie Porter? I don't know. Um, but I am thinking of buying some URLs in anticipation of 2020, right? So one of the free tips I'll Real give you... RealKatiePorter.org. Yeah. Yes. If any of you are thinking of running for office someday where you think your child shows political promise, you should run out and buy not only their URL, like markoppenheimer.com, but you should also buy like markoppenheimerisacrook.com, markoppenheimerisnottrustworthy.com, because you should buy all of the related to sites. To show how, like, how proud you are of your child. <laughs> yeah, you should just lock them down. Yeah. Um, lock them down. So, and then my other site is, um, it's at katieporteroc. And so um, today we just posted um, some videos talking about something I've been working on, which is with regard to furloughed workers. Um, I got to make my first speech on the House floor, which was very fun. Uh, And it's a little bit like being the Gentile of the week. Like, you're not quite sure what this means. Um, It seems like a little bit of a risk, but like one worth taking. And um, one of the things that we did is I called on the nation's largest banks, credit card issuers and mortgage companies to not charge any late fees, any interest, and do any negative credit reporting on unpaid workers. And so I've been starting to have meetings with those bankers and and trying to help. Because we talk about we're going to make these workers whole by paying them back pay. That really misses the fact that there's an interim hardship that you can never, you can never put back the insecurity and the anxiety um, and the fear that those families are feeling right now trying to make ends meet. And so trying to make sure that they're not digging themselves deeper in terms of late fees and credit card fees. So that's been my first, my first project. Amen. Representative Porter, thank you so much for making your debut as Gentile of the Week. Thank you. Thank you, Congresswoman. We have one more chance for audience participation, which is it's time for the Mazel Tovs. As you know, we close every show with the Mazel Tovs. Uh, We're going to do a few, and then um, we want to open it up for five or ten of you to give quick Mazel Tovs that, you know, some of them may make it on the air. I'm just going to say that my, I have a few Mazel Tovs this week. I want to give a Rafua Shalema, a get well to Lydia Belser. I want to give a big Mazel Tov on the air to Dr. Sasha Goldstein-Sabach for getting his PhD about the Jewish congregations of Iraq finally approved after a long journey of research around the world. 
And Dina Kronfeld asked me if I would wish a very special Mazel Tov to her husband, Tristan Shelton, on the one-year anniversary of his conversion. Mazel Tov, Tristan Shelton. I like that. That's yeah. a good name, Tristan. Tristan we need Shelton. more Tristans. Um, my Mazel Tov is to my very best friend, Kat, who's here. She just got a new dog, and her name is Olive, and I met her, and she is so cute. I've seen the pictures. Yeah. Very which, cute dog. They're on Instagram. Leo, so do you just Mazel Tov. Mazel Tov. Do you have any Mazel Tovs, Leo? Yeah, you know, so I, I live vicariously through Stephanie's family. We so, all do. So my Mazel we all do. So my Mazel Tov is to show favorite Grandpa Al and Cecile Rothhouse, uh, Stephanie's grandparents, who are celebrating their 65th anniversary oh, this God. week. We're going we to Florida. We love you, Grandpa Allen, Grandma Cecilia. Amazing. You can come to Florida for the party. Nice. Uh, all right. Oh Let's God. do these two lines. If you're in line right now, you're, you, we, we want to hear your mazel tov. Let's start with you, Josh. All right. First, I'm giving one to our listener, Matt Sheeran, because he knows exactly what he did. <laughs> <laughs> he helped Josh with an Excel document. <laughs> it's more than that. I'm Melissa Stein. Um, and I want to give a gigantic mazel tov to the uh, Sperling Milner family. Yeah. Their, uh, their daughter um, read her entire Parsha in Braille for Shabbat this week for her wow. Amazing. Cool. That sounds like something we might want to talk about on an episode of Unorthodox. All right, we got to do these really fast. We want to get to a lot of many people as possible. My name is Miles Roger, and I would like to wish Mazel Tov to my brother, Eddie, who is celebrating his 36th double high birthday. Mazel Tov. I'm Patty Lieberman. I wanted to give a Mazel Tov to my niece, Yael, and her husband, Sammy, on having the first girl in our family in 30 years after 13 straight boys. Oh, my God. Wow. Let's do it. I'm Sophia Nade, and I want to give a mazel tov to my mom, Laura Nade, who organized this taping. Yay! <laughs> um, I've seen how hard she worked to make this a success, and I think we can all agree that she did an incredible job. So Amazing. mazel tov, mom! Yay! Sir? I'm Yitz Sandberg. I uh, just want to give a shout-out to my fellow federal employees. Just, we can do this, we can get through it. You can do it, guys. Give that guy some swag. I'm Ben Duak. I want to give a mazel tov to my sister Amanda on giving birth to a baby girl. Yay! Yay! Baby girls all over. My name is Ricky Groskoff, and I would like to extend a mazel tov to my friend Carissa, who just got married after being engaged to her now husband Jacob for two years. Mazel tov. Hi, I'm Michael Ramsey, and I want to give a mazel tov to my partner Brian Schwartz, who moved in with me last Friday. Uh, and uh, we now live next door to the synagogue, so. Oh, it's perfect. Mazel tov to Brian for making a good life so, choice. So no excuses. <laughs> uh, my name is Sam Nellis. I want to give a mazel tov to uh, Luke and Mary Feinberg, who welcomed their second child yesterday, healthy and happy Jackson. Mazel tov. Hey. My name is Tali Kuehl. I want to wish a huge mazel tov to my friend Avi Rothfeld and to his fiance Stephanie Abrahamoff. He's a huge fan of the podcast, so this is going to mean a lot to him. Yay! Invite us to your wedding. I'm Brad Stillman, and I want to wish a mazel tov to all of the uh, Charles E. Smith Jewish Day School seniors who will graduate in this very sanctuary in just a couple of weeks, including my son Gabe. Mazel tov, Charles E. Smith Day School graduates. 
Hi, my name is Brett Bourne, and I just wanted to give a mazel tov to Eliana Ross Layton. Uh, she is not, in fact, Jewish, but she does have Jewish ancestry, and her best friend is a Holocaust survivor who's a very close friend of my mom's. Mazel tov, Eliana. There we have it. Congresswoman Eliana Ross Layton. My name is Lowell Brazen. I want to give a mazel tov to my brother-in-law and sister, who called me at 728 this evening to tell me they're pregnant with their second child. Aww. Aww. You were like, excuse me, I'm at a taping of a podcast. Can I call you back? <laughs> Hi, uh, my name's Tatiana Becker, and I want to wish Mazel Tov to my boyfriend, Joshua Greenberg, who just finished his third semester at Hebrew College. He's in rabbinical school, and he's a huge fan of the podcast. So I hope this makes it on, because I love him, and that would really make him happy. <laughs> Mazel Tov, rabbinic student Josh, who attends the seminary, whose president performed my wedding, Sharon Annisfeld. So Mazel Tov. I'm Laura Nade, again. And I'd like to wish Rafua Shlema to one of our ARJE members, Vanessa Ehrlich, who so dearly wanted to be here, but was not able to travel because of some health issues. I would also like to wish a mazel tov to Mandy Herlich, who is the best friend, co-planner, wonderful person anyone could ever hope to meet. I love you, Mandy. Mazel tov. All right. We've got three more. I am Lisa Alperin, and I just wanted to wish a mazel tov to Mandy and Laura both, who have done an amazing job at the, I think I'm going to call it Arj, right? Arj. 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 So, mazel tov. Mazel tov. My name is Missy Bell, and I want to wish a mazel tov to Dr. Kathy Schwartz, who will be installed tomorrow morning as the new president of the Arj. Dr. Schwartz. Wow. Hi, my name is Lauren Glazer, and I think we should all mazel tov Rachel Banks on her recent work promotion. Clearly we should. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. You can ask for our newsletter by writing to unorthodox at tabletmag.com and putting newsletter in the subject line. We often come to you live, like tonight at Washington Hebrew Congregation with RJ. To book us or advertise with us, email producer Josh Cross, that's Cross with a K, jcross at tabletmag.com. And of course, you need to wear and carry unorthodox as well. You can do that by coming to a live show and winning it, or you can go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt and find the latest in unorthodox shirts, mugs, and onesies. No baby is too young to be a billboard for our podcast. Follow us on Instagram at Unorthodox Podcast, on Twitter at Unorthodox underscore pod. You can join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross, Shira Tulishkin, and Noah Levinson. Our editor is Sophia Steinert-Eboy. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our social media intern is Elazar Abrams. Our other intern is Jillian Forstott for at least a couple more weeks. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision by three fine rabbis this week, Rabbi Rebecca Reese and Rabbis Rachel Gartner and Benjamin Bearer. Shalom, friends. Shalom, friends.